This is Josh Rees, and I'm so grateful you're listening to the Mile High Church Podcast. Two great classes start in March, Socrates and the Meaning of Life with yours truly, and Celtic Spirituality with Reverend Zamira Jaswerska. And hey, if you get anything out of listening to this podcast, consider making a donation. Go to milehighchurch.org and click on Give Now. Uh, Ernest Holmes, our founder, defined religious science as a correlation of laws of science, opinions of philosophy, and revelations of religion applied to human needs and the aspirations of man. Laws of science, all about knowledge. What can we find out about the laws of nature and the laws of mind? Religion, all about learning to identify with a power greater than we are, to connect with it within and to live from it profoundly in our lives. And philosophy, the wisdom on how to live a great life. Not what to think, but how to think. Beware when God lets loose a thinker on this planet, Emerson said, (laughs) then all things are at risk. And we have a lot of religious influences all the great founders of great faiths, Jesus and Buddha. But we also have great philosophical influences as well. Perhaps none more profound than Socrates, the father of philosophy, who was declared in ancient Athens as the wisest man by the oracle of Delphi. But he wouldn't have said that. He said, the only reason I might be wise is because I'm the first to admit that I don't know. Not knowing is the beginning of wisdom. And Socrates didn't apply answers. He applied questions. He applied curiosity. The unexamined life is not worth living. And to me, this is all that feeds into our philosophy here of staying open at the top. To always be evolving in our thinking, in our striving. What Jesus is to faith, Socrates is to learning. What Jesus is to the churches all over the United States, Socrates is to universities. That thoughtfulness, that questioning. But he's also an incredible spiritual teacher. Jesus taught that God is a presence of unconditional love and that God loves you like a caring parent loves their child. And if you can do what is sometimes the hard work of opening your heart to receive that love and then commit to practicing it towards others, not only do you realize the kingdom of heaven on earth, but you begin to experience your eternal life. That one true life. Socrates believed that it's so important to know and fully understand what your virtues are. Love, peace, integrity, honesty, kindness. Understand them so well that they become as much who you are as your name or the shoes on your feet. Then live from this virtue with clarity 
and you will live a great life. And I honestly believe if you take these two teachings about receiving the love of God and practicing it towards others and living your virtues emphatically with clarity and self-inquiry, that you can find a meaning in your life that's byproduct will be the healing, the happiness, the fulfillment, the abundance, and overall well-being. Both Jesus and Socrates challenged the common sense, the practical wisdom of the time. It's amazing how much they actually have in common. But it's so interesting that they're probably the two most revolutionary individuals in all of history, but we, none of us have ever read a single word either wrote. Jesus we learn through the Gospels, and Socrates we learn mostly through the dialogues of, of Plato. And they're both revolutionary, and they both challenged the common sense, and they were both murdered for what they taught. Jesus tells of a Pharisee, a respected person in Jewish society, and a tax collector. They were even ribbing tax collectors back then. And the Pharisee is uh, praying, and he says, God, bless me, for I am not like this tax collector over here. And the tax collector says, God, have mercy on me, a flawed human being. And Jesus' teaching is this, it's through humility. It's through asking and receiving the love of God that our life becomes truly transformed. I think it's a great question in spiritual living to ask yourself, how did I love God today? How did I love God this week? How did I love the sacred? How about it? I had my daughter on my lap on a swing, and we looked up and beheld the majestic sky, and I felt a love for God. I was doing some writing, and I just got to pause and say, thank you, life. Thank you, God. In a moment of silence, of reverence, I got to love God. What is spirituality? but learning to love God by loving her creation, whatever's there to be loved. Perhaps an even more challenging question for spiritual living is how did you let God love you today? How did you let God love you this week? However it may be. God, I swear, when I had my daughter on my lap and we were looking at that majestic sky and marveled at it, that in its own way it marveled back at us. Someone gave me a compliment on a talk that I gave, and I, I didn't just dismiss it right away. I, I, re I received it. I took it to heart. I let the people who love me, love me. It sounds simple, but it's the most profound way to change your life, is to live like you are loved. Live like you are the most loved individual. There is, because there is that divine love that when we receive it, to honor Dr. Barry, when our, our heart can become a catcher's mitt, to receive the divine, it begins to bring harmony and balance and essence 
into our lives. But that's the question. Can you receive that great love and then practice it towards others? This, to me, is the, the real metaphysical meaning behind the parable of the prodigal son, the young son who blows his inheritance and leaves home and sleeps with the pigs. He, he, he returns broken down, and yet he asks for his father's love, and he receives it. It's the older son, the goody-two-shoes son, the self-righteous son, the son who's done everything right, who, it's not that he's not loved by his father, but he rejects himself from receiving that love by falling into judgment, self-righteousness. That's the calling of each of us to learn to receive a deeper and more profound love so we can practice it in our lives. Jesus teaches us how to love. Socrates teaches us how to think. My favorite dialogue of Plato about Socrates is called Euthyphro. And Socrates, he's in the court, outside a court, because he's uh, about to be put on trial. And he encounters Euthyphro there. And it's a very interesting time there in ancient Athens. Socrates would have 500 people on his jury. Right? That's a lot of Nancy Grace interviews right there. Right? And, and there weren't lawyers per se. Normal citizens would prosecute the cases. And Socrates says, hey, Euthyphro, what are you doing here? And Euthyphro says, oh, it's actually quite interesting. I'm here to prosecute my own father. You see, Euthyphro's father owned a lot of farming land. And there was someone who worked there who robbed and murdered someone. And so his father, the landowner, had him arrested and tied up with the thought that he would take him to the authorities the next day, and the man died. And so Euthyphro is going to prosecute his father. Why? Socrates asked. Well, because it is the pious thing to do. We've got a little CSU ancient Athens going on here, don't we? Piety. All of the dialogues of Plato just about address a, a virtue. And so here's this one. It's, it's piety. And Socrates says, you know, you're the perfect person for me to talk to. I'm being tried for corrupting the youth. Way to go, Socrates. Uh, and also for not believing in the gods of, of Athens, for not being pious. So I, I would love to know, so I can talk about my trial, what piety is. Will you please do me the favor of telling me what piety is? And Euthyphro responds, well, piety is what is pleasing to the gods. Oh, that's wonderful, Euthyphro. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. But, but hold on. Wait a second. So if piety is what is pleasing to the gods, um, don't the gods disagree sometimes? You know, Zeus and Hera, they don't always see eye to eye, right? Well, Euthyphro thinks about it and talks more about it, tries to defend his position. Then he comes up with a new definition of piety. That piety is what the gods love. Very good, wonderful definition, Socrates replies. But wait a second. Is something pious because the gods love it? Or do the gods love it because it's pious? <laughs> Jesus described himself as a fisher of men. Socrates defined himself as a gadfly on a horse's behind. <laughs> He's like that annoying little mosquito that gets in your ear, you know, and you're like... Mosquito, you could be anywhere in this wide universe. Get the heck out of my ear. He's pestering. 
He doesn't mean to be. He's childlike. He's not lawyerly. He's childlike. He wants to know. And, and he asks and asks until the person being asked the questions is so broken down. They're so frustrated. They're so annoyed that they, they run away. This is why he was really put on trial. And if you're reading this in college, you see it kind of humorous. Euthyphro runs away. But when we look at it from a spiritual perspective, it's actually quite heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because Euthyphro has been philosophically gutted. This virtue that he says he values more than anything else, piety, he doesn't know what it is. He doesn't know what it is. And it's a weird thing with virtues. We might say we believe in something, but when we don't know what it is, we're actually doomed to express its opposite. And here is a man who believes in such a superficial piety that he's about to potentially put his own father to death for it. And it speaks to this absence in human nature to inquire about what really matters most to us. What is it? I believe in love, and why am I being a jerk to my spouse? I believe in peace of mind, well, why am I so focused on chaos? I believe in the flag. Why am I supporting something that stands against what it represents? It doesn't mean we always have to be perfectly in our virtue. But if we're not willing to stop and inquire about what matters most to us, how are we going to practice it with any sort of clarity? in the Socrates in the Meaning of Life class that I get to teach starting on Thursday, uh, an essential part of the class is everyone chooses a virtue. Everyone chooses a, a virtue that, that's important to them or that they want to learn more about or that they, they want to better embody. And it's an amazing spiritual thing about virtue because I don't think you really choose it. It chooses you. It's an amazing thing to, to highlight a virtue like love or peace or integrity or authority or confidence and realize that this, this virtue is, 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 is a part of the story of your life that has been speaking to you through role models and through challenging circumstances, that your whole life, in a sense, has been an education in this virtue so that you can live it with greater clarity. Sometimes we know exactly what the virtue is. Sometimes it seems alien. We need to grow into it. But by doing that, we grow ourselves. The virtue that I'm choosing for the course has been calling me a lot lately. And it's trust. Trust. What does it mean to live in trust? And for me, to trust is to learn to be who I really am. And one of the places these virtue echoed to me was in reading for our spiritual practices class, um, the Tao Te Ching, and from Ursula Le Guin's version, she says this, knowing people is intelligence. Knowing yourself is wisdom. Overcoming others takes strength. Overcoming yourself takes greatness. Contentment is wealth. Boldly pushing forward takes resolution. Staying put keeps you in position. To live till you die is to live long enough. And I literally could share for 30 minutes about the amount of meaning that spoke to me in reading this, and I'm just going to take 29. No, um, just to point out a couple. 
couple of things. To, to, to take that statement, overcoming yourself takes greatness. Mm, overcoming myself takes greatness because that self that I need to overcome is that, that part of me that's in, that's in fear. That part of me that sometimes falls into control. That part of me that lives in distrust and gets drained. I need to overcome that self so that I can live in a greater way of being who I am. Contentment is wealth. The beginning of living a good life is the capability of being content. And you can't get there without trust. So I've got to stop worrying about the money or the success or the building this or making that happen and and learn perhaps the greatest skill that there is, which is to appreciate the good of your life while it's happening right here and right now. And lastly, that beautiful statement, to live till you die is to live long enough. Such a statement to me of what it means to live in trust, to release what is not mine to control, and to be that which I'm meant to be, to be a whole person living a whole life. What's that virtue that's calling to you? Anybody? Let's hear a couple. Loyalty, love, integrity, integrity. gratitude, great. Yeah, so you can say these over and over. And it's so interesting with these virtues because um, you know, they're, they're simple words, but they mean something different to all of us. And it really is my belief that these, these, these virtues are our soul. There's the divine expressing out there. And as we, we learn to embrace these virtues in our hearts and live them with clarity in our lives, they begin to demonstrate for us in incredible ways. Part of what made Jesus and Socrates so profound is that they were true to their virtues. Jesus' virtue is love or forgiveness. That's how you practice the love of God towards others. And besides a few places where he isn't quite able to do it, all the way to his end, the end of his life, on the cross being murdered, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He doesn't fall victim to the circumstance. He stays true to his virtue. Socrates goes on trial, and he doesn't even really argue the charges that much. He really argues for virtue. And there's 500 people there, and the vote's close to find him guilty. It's like 270 to 230. And he's surprised by that, but the next phase of the trial is the penalty phase. And you better be really conscious about what penalty you propose, because if not, it's death. And so people are hoping that Socrates will request a fine or maybe even exile, which would be an extreme response. And Socrates decides to say that his punishment should be to be put up in one of the finest mansions in town and receive free room and board for the rest of his life. (laughs) And it's not martyrdom, but he forces the jury to choose death, to choose for him to drink the hemlock. But he's staying true to his virtues because for him to not be true to your virtue is a kind of death. It's a worse kind of death because it's sacrificing who you are. Or as Jesus would say, nothing anyone could ever do to you can defile you. It's only what comes from you that can defile you or hurt you. Socrates stays true to his virtue even in confronting death. People talk about death, he says, like it's the greatest curse but what if it's the greatest blessing? And in some of his final words to his students, and so I go, 
you to live and me to die, but which of us is on to better things, God only knows. I encourage you to do the following to increase a sense of virtue and a meaningful life. And the first is to identify your virtue or your virtues. What are those qualities that are most important to you? And are you willing to really embody, learn from them, grow from them? This past July, I was hitting a wall in both my personal and professional life. And what, what was happening is I was realizing that, that my um, way of life was becoming a result of my work as opposed to my work and my personal life coming from that way of life, which is so important. And so I knew I needed to get back to virtue. And so I sat down and I said, what are the four virtues, Josh, you need the most right now? And they were preparation, receptivity, accountability, and composure. Lots and lots of composure. And it was kind of, kind of powerful to do that because it wasn't about changing things in my life. It was about bringing something forth within me that was being called for. And some of you have heard me say this before, but if you, you feel that there's something missing in your life, it's almost certainly you. It's that quality of being that's being called for so that you can, you can live creatively again, not down to what's happening to you, but responsive from that very cause of your being, which is a transformation agent. Second, learn about your virtues. Learn by asking people you respect about what that virtue means to them. Google your virtue. What have wise people said about it? But most importantly, take your virtue and practice it, experiment with it in this laboratory, laboratory of life. My four virtues were cool because they spelled prac. And for every day for several months, and now just once a week or so, I sit down and I think, Josh, where do you want to practice preparation most this week? Well, for my Sunday talk. Where do you want to practice receptivity? I want to be more receptive to love. Where do I want to practice accountability? I want to be more accountable to my family. Where do I want to practice better composure? in this challenging conversation or wherever it is that it's headed. And, and there's something so powerful about taking that virtue and, and, and applying it where you want it practiced and, and to see how it begins to show up. Lastly, and most importantly, be your virtue. Recognize again that, that your virtue is just another name for, for your soul, for who you really are. And it may even be more who you are than your name. And when we learn to understand our virtues as a divine part of ourselves, we begin to become that much more who we are meant to be in our lives. It's so often when we're facing a challenging situation where we don't know what to do or what to say that we get lost in that confusion. But honestly, the best response is often not to figure out what to do, but to identify that virtue that you're called to become. Show up as love in that difficult conversation. Show up honest in a situation where you don't know what decision to make. If you can't trust your virtues, what can you trust? And I know we don't believe in hell, but I would follow my virtues into hell if that's where they led me because they 
done that much for me in my life and continue to. And by being your virtue, they can do the same for you. When you commit to your virtue, your virtue commits to you. And you bring forth, not to get too woo-woo, but you bring forth the divine itself. It's almost as if that's why we're here. To become aware of beauty, truth, goodness, meaning. To bring it forth in our everyday life. To see those places where it's not showing up. To practice it. And to experience the incredible transformation that takes place from that deep and wonderful gift. So taking all that now into prayer, I invite any of our prayer practitioners to stand if they so choose. Some of these lovely practitioners will be here right in front of the stage for prayer at the conclusion of service. And let us just take a moment to do our best right here and right now to let the divine in, to let spirit behold who we are, to allow the arms of the magnificent to metaphorically be wrapped around us, to allow spirit's hand to take our heart break down all the defenses around it and uplift it into all of our relationships and experiences. Identifying our virtue, committing to do our best, to not just follow it, but to be a transparent presence for what it is. I know that as we do this, we experience healing, we experience connection, we experience growth and we allow ourselves to indeed live like we are loved, know as we are known and see perhaps with that eye that beholds us in sacred vision, in sacred light, in sacred joy. We let it be, we let it become and so it is. Thanks for listening to the Mile High Church podcast. This podcast is made possible by the generous contributions from listeners like you. To make a donation, please visit milehighchurch.org.